You know, she seems like she's at the pinnacle of something, but she says, no, you, what I really want to do when I grow up is I want to open my own hospital back in my home country. Kids eyes light up and they're like, whoa, what's that about? And she'll tell them because she's telling them more about what her passion is. And that's a real experience I had facilitating, you know, an event over in a a, a local uh, school on, on the north side here, you know, just a few months ago. Truly passionate, alive people will inspire other people to be also very passionate and to just consider planting those seeds. We might never watch these mighty oaks grow, but they're there. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Higher Ground, Higher Ground is a technology company whose mission is to bridge the wealth gap through access to procurement opportunities. Higher Ground is making the enterprise ecosystem more viable, profitable, and competitive by clearing the path for minority-led, women-led, LGBT-led, and veteran-led small businesses to contribute to the global economy as suppliers to enterprise organizations. For more information on getting started, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E-G-R-O-U-N-D.io. Now on to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Matt Colicello, in for Adam Moore, and I'm here with my co-host, Chloe Gidry-Reed. In today's episode, we're joining Rachel Moretzwa, Director of Equity and Inclusion at Ohio State University's College of Nursing. Rachel is a seasoned diversity, equity, and inclusion professional, community impact leader, and higher education administrator. She specializes in a variety of fields, including community outreach and engagement, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and social program initiatives. She's also a social worker by training. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hello, hello. Thanks so much for having me. So glad yes. to have you. Yes. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining. We are so happy to have you. Awesome. Well, first, I'd like to get started. Tell us a little bit about you and your your journey to Ohio State University. Yeah, I come to Ohio State as an alumna. I So I got my social work master's here at Ohio State and um, spent a few years away working primarily in Chicago, uh, and then I'm back, have been for the past five years, having found a position here at the College of Nursing where I can really put a lot of my skills and interests into play. And I think in terms of my position currently as the current director of equity and inclusion, I wear a lot of hats. It's really common, the IMB work. Uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will understand. It's a bit of an entrepreneurial space, really, just in being able to be mm-hmm. um, a person of all trades. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to you know share share a lot of of my experience thus far in those various arenas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just set us up for the for our next question. Tell us a little bit about your current role and how that plays into the university system, and just you know maybe some of your challenges and being in this role. But we'd love to hear just a little bit about how this looks inside of a university. 
Well, I think I'm, I'm really excited to work in a university sphere just because it's a multidisciplinary approach. You know, so I get to I get to learn a lot from other people. I'm constantly filling up my mind with new ideas that have interesting um, synergy with the work in DEI. I really enjoy the part of being part of a talent pipeline pathway, just because it's there's so there's so many students from so many places around the world and around the United States, and in our case in Ohio, uh, around the state of Ohio, given that we're a land grant university uh, and a major educator in the region, really, not just in the state. So it's it's really important for me to be a part of an institution that has a large impact. And Ohio State is definitely one of those places. There's never, never a dull moment when you're at a research institution. So there's always a lot of opportunities for students to uh, advance their uh, scholarship. And that's really exciting for me, especially since I work a lot with first generation and lower income students and students from underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. So yeah, there's there's a a bit more to unpack there, I'm sure, but yeah. I'm trying to give you the Cliff Notes version of, of life in, in an academic institution. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how is, and I, I mean, obviously, you know, through the lens of Ohio State, but how is a university a unique kind of institution to do the social impact work? It's really important for us to have access to resources like funding. Uh, so each of the college units, for example, uh, is able to allocate funds towards programs, uh, developmental opportunities that not only you know serve students that they are directly educating, but uh, again can affect the community. And uh, I'd say, especially in the case of the College of Nursing, we have a lot of health and wellness initiatives that our faculty lead, that our program staff coordinate. Uh, my area is just one area of many that do that kind of work. And having access to, to technology that lets us do things in innovative and creative and efficient ways is also really important. I, I don't necessarily think it's the case that you know the academy can necessarily be looked at as a, a slow adopter of technology anymore. I think we're just in a space where really closing digital divides, even in the way our, our students are taught and our, our, our faculty are supported, uh, th that's happening. That's really happening, which I consider to be very much an access issue uh, with us having a lot of online programs, for example. I think that really makes sure that students really anywhere in the world at times have access to a high quality education, which is what we offer at the College of Nursing. And so, yeah, there's there's just a lot of resources just by the mere fact that we are a research institution. Uh, it keeps knowledge flowing in so that we can continue to you know, compete and to um, stay a top-rated university. Mm -hmm. I think Chloe and I are beginning to, and our listeners are beginning to, to see why and how it is that you're wearing so many hats as you kind of move through these overlapping worlds of of DEI and of higher education and community outreach and impact. But I also want to go back to, before we get into all of that, your background. Because mm -hmm. you're a social worker by training, as, as, as I mentioned at the top of the show. How does that social work background and education inform mm -hmm. all the work you're doing right now? I honestly don't think I could have picked a better fit for the work that I currently do in higher education. Uh, there's a lot of, I think, 
It's just the constant involvement in complex social issues. And that is what DEINB is. I think too that social workers are really positioned to engage with communities. So we're always thinking about how to coordinate with groups. Uh, and then we're also taught clinical skill sets. So we know how to deal with individuals. And in DEINB work, <laughs> we're doing all of that all the time. Uh, we're coordinating community events. We're directly developing relationships with the students who we're trying to retain and support in our organization. As a DEI professional, I can you know, regularly switch from a strategic meeting to a direct student support meeting to an initiative involving a small team of three other campus partners, and that's all in one day. So I think social workers are very well trained in that area, especially administrative social workers like myself. It really goes hand in glove. I can't really be more grateful uh, for it. And I think social workers are very much ethically bound to social justice and also to advocacy. I can kind of brag on you know my own education at Ohio State that we were very much encouraged to be leaders within establishing healthy organizational culture and that we we can count on opportunities presenting themselves constantly for us to have to be the one to speak up. Advocacy is our bread and butter. Uh, we're either advocating on the part of our clients, uh, in my case, our students. Um, sometimes we're advocating on the parts of whole communities in a data-driven way. Sometimes we might be advocating for certain demographics of people, just depending on where we're focusing with our with our scope. Yeah, so so fitting into a especially a health science education is perfect for me because I think that a social work education has made it so clear that we're supposed to get students, we're supposed to get human beings to their full potential. Well, we're getting students through a rigorous program to their full potential as healthcare professionals. And we're also making sure that those healthcare professionals are well equipped to encounter the very diverse patient populations mm. and then work towards the very noble goal of health equity. So it's it just all builds into itself. Mm. Yeah. One of the other things that I thought, you know, with your social work background is I think sometimes when policies are made at universities or in general, just in the broader community, sometimes people don't have that context of people's backgrounds. And so from a social work perspective, seeing so much of what challenges that certain communities face and, you know, just all these other various things from financial literacy to home insecurity, all of these other various things and having that knowledge in the back of your mind when then coming and dealing with students and the community, it just probably offers a different level of context that maybe others don't have because you think about the amount of time it takes some people to get up to speed. And mm -hmm. a lot of that is educating them on the background of the people that they're serving. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, you know, the academic background of anyone, many people in social sciences as a whole fits really, really well with DEIMB and just with student support in the academic setting, um, especially if it's an institution that does a great job of attracting a wide diversity of students all under excellence principles, I think that's important to mention. I think it's really key to, to just be able to meet the students where they are as quickly as you can <laughs> and not have, you know, the sort of, how shall I say, the experience of the student having to expend a lot of emotional labor in, in trying to get the people who are supposed to support them 
where they are. Exactly to your point. Yeah. Having to then relive things or telling them things that you feel like people who are supposed to be advocating for you should already know. Absolutely. And and establishing that trust, I would say, is, is probably a common thread across a lot of different professions. You know, whether people find themselves, you know, at the head of a corporation or, you know, in the front lines of some healthcare setting that, you know, establishing trust is so key. And so being a social worker by training, as well as bringing some of my own positionality to the table in terms of my own identities, I have lived experiences that allow me to connect with a broad swath of humanity, (laughs) to be frank. It's just about, you know, making it easy as possible for people who, I say all the time, we're not necessarily meeting people on their best days when it comes to our service populations. So let me be ready to be as useful, kind, and trustworthy to them as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. This podcast is geared towards supplier diversity professionals, supply chain leaders, and diverse suppliers, diverse business owners and entrepreneurs. And we we help people make connections across those groups. But something that a lot of companies are engaging in that, that we work with and that we're exposed to and people that we have on the show are working to do is create better pipelines, create better connections from the very outset in their work um, through community outreach, through educational outreach. And the work that you're doing at the College of Nursing just strikes us as exemplary in that way. So, but, but before we jump into that, because I, <laughs> I, I want us to talk about the, the programs that you're working on in that realm, but before we jump into that, you have such a unique story, even going deeper than your education and social work and how you're bringing that to the institution, which by the way, that just sounds like the most obvious thing that social workers should be in every <laughs> large institution, right? A <laughs> institution that's having some kind of major impact on their region. And yet it feels like the reality is that there are very, very few in those in, in, in positions like yours. But I digress. Um, before we go into everything I was just mentioning, I would love for you to share just a little bit more about that positionality that you mentioned and, and what what gives you that ability to connect with so many kinds of people? I'm just going to quickly go in the area of you digressing and say, yes, social workers everywhere all the time. We need this as a society, administrative ones, clinical ones everywhere. Our skill set is is regularly complimented by the nurses I interact with who are just grateful to see MSW behind my name, it seems sometimes. <laughs> so uh, so yes, thank you. Thank you, Matt. And shout out to the profession. Um, in terms of my positionality, I'll try to be as detailed, uh, but also as concise as possible. So I want to just share some of my identities. I have African and European ancestry. I identify as a lesbian. I'm a cisgender woman. Uh, I have lived uh, for all of my formative years in Harare, Zimbabwe. I have also traveled to several locations outside of the United States with a desire to connect to the communities. And I say this with love to not necessarily have a tourist experience. (laughs) So all of that is to say that I'm really personally invested in intersectionality because I live it. And I know that's the case for millions and millions of other people. And I also want to say that 
It doesn't just stop with those identities that I mentioned. There's a lot of privileges that I have that are invisible. Uh, And there's a lot of social justice frameworks might say oppressed states that vacillate depending on what context I'm in. Mm. Um, So I have this experience of being a Black biracial lesbian, let's just say that, where my people aren't necessarily visible, right? well-respected, well-resourced, and safe. <laughs> and that's it, that's in my global lens, too. I, I don't just look at this in terms of living in the United States and being a citizen of this country. I also think about it in terms of the people who may share some of my origins on the African continent, people who may share my complexion on many continents that aren't Africa. So yeah, I think that that's really, that's really where I come from. And, and I really try to, uh, and all of my identities, whether they are privileged or oppressed in, in any given context, I constantly learn about them too. I, I don't share all that to just sort of check off a big diversity list. It, these are my identities that I'm constantly working with, learning from, celebrating, protecting, nurturing, and becoming more and more self-aware about how they interact with the identities of others as I uncover them in some cases, because human beings constantly surprise me uh, in terms of their own diversities. I absolutely love that. I think about, you know, just listening to you, my own duality and the intersection of a lot of different things. When what I think about it for myself is that from an emotional intelligence perspective, it helps me just think through a whole lot of different things, but it also helps me empathize with people who have same intersections or have similar affinities that I do. And with such a broad, eclectic, you know, set of different experiences, you know, education levels, backgrounds, obviously being biracial, all of these other various things can just add to the complexity. But there are tribes out there that that need advocacy. And sometimes it's like, you know, if you don't have anyone that has had those lived experiences, then it's really hard to be able to meet students where they are. And I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. Mm, well, thank you for sharing that, Rachel. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. <laughs> so question for you, just as we talk about just more the DE&I space and your particular role, what is your philosophy as a DE&I professional and community impact leader? Just the listening part and the learning part of showing up every day. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? And obviously you're doing a lot of community advocacy work and talking to different stakeholders in the community. How do you bring all that together and then share that information with the various stakeholders? Well, you mentioned listening and I think that's key. It's one of the yes. It's one of the first skills I really really picked up in my social work training, being taught how to actively listen. And even to actively listen to people who I have diametric opposition to. <laughs> Which is a skill set in itself. Oh. Because as soon as you're in opposition with people, they will tell you right away. Yes. And you can almost see them physically turning you off and turning the volume down on whatever it is that you're saying. Absolutely. And it's and it's so easy to block, delete, ignore in terms of many of the ways that we communicate with each other these days. So 
my academic experience obviously was very, very visceral. Like I'm sitting in a session with another human being role-playing, you know, let's say a client and they're presenting challenges to me that I have to not just emotionally contend with and intellectually contend with, but but also physiologically contend with because our, our ability to actually quietly listen to each other for me is very much a skill that I will be practicing for the rest of my life. So I think that because I come from a background of wanting to, to really connect with people and to be helpful, it's been very worthwhile for me to employ active listening and also to acquire a degree of nonviolent communication, uh, which is also a skill set. There's a lot of very blunt, dehumanizing language uh, that's normalized, I think, in a, in, a, in a social context. And it can also be sort of uh, parsed up into different perspectives around how that language should be received. You know, if it's just a sense of humor, or if it's just a, a cultural way of being, uh, things of that nature. I I think that all of that gets taken away when I just listen first mm-hmm. and really choose to absorb information before I speak. I am by no means perfect at this. I Like I said, I will be a student of this for the rest of my life. You know, if you catch me on a certain day and I'm still like, I'm I'm a little groggy or I'm a little hungry, I'm a little thirsty, you know, I might not be as good at it (laughs) as I am other times. But yeah, my philosophy, especially when it comes to working successfully within diverse groups is to listen, especially if I don't have shared identities with folks that I can ascertain from the get go. Nobody's sharing with me. Uh, nobody's looking at me and being like, I see you, you see me, we experience the same world, or I can tell by the way that you've presented your positionality that we have things that match. So I think listening is absolutely key. So listening, how to communicate, if I if I may offer a bit of a loving critique of the academy at times, uh, people who have been in lots and lots of school can skew towards verbal dominance. The experience of it is just experiencing a blizzard of words, you know, large vocabularies, SAT words just flying all around, very much like I need a dictionary in order to know what you're talking about. So I try my best because I'm trying to connect with people genuinely and usually very quickly to make sure that I'm talking as well as I can in a developmentally appropriate way, a culturally appropriate way. And that part of that culture is around, am I sounding like an academic right now? Is that necessary? Is that really necessary, Rachel? It's like, usually it's not. Even in the academy, sometimes it's not. And so that's really important to me because being credentialed is a privilege in social justice frameworks. And also being within the DEI space, there's certain language, vernacular, jargon, academic terms that can sound really unwieldy and very intimidating if people aren't familiar with them. It makes people clam up. It makes people withdraw. I can see it in people's faces and trainings and things of that nature. And I really want people to feel like they can succeed in a place. So DEI for me, DEI and B is absolutely predicated on approachability to tough situations and a way of helping people navigate themselves, being able to be free to speak being able to work together effectively uh, mm-hmm. through a lot of dense material 
and a lot of really painful history in some cases. I'm a amateur, but I'm I'm a student of truth and reconciliation processes around the world, specifically the one that happened in South Africa since I was growing up there, growing up j- just across the, you know, the the border uh, in Zimbabwe, you know, witnessing in my own way their transformation into a majority-led democracy and understanding that, you know, the truth and reconciliation process was something that I had never heard about before, you know, understanding what was happening in South Africa. If anyone's interested in, you know, sort of reading transcripts and going through the history of that, the the amount of listening that had to happen for people to really start to reveal some of the truths, not all the story has necessarily been told, but some of the truths around very, very painful and very recent events, I really take a lot from those tribunals and those meeting groups and those kind of advanced level of humanity that people have to exist at in order to absorb information enough to move towards reconciliation when so much pain has been caused. Um, so obviously DEI and B is not is not doing truth and reconciliation work, but I do take techniques from truth and reconciliation and apply them just to my listening and learning abilities that I can guarantee any given day, I will hear language that will be upsetting to me on some level. I will need to process that in my own mature way after the conversation's over. And it, it's it's a given. So I, I just need to be ready and prepared and, and not desensitized to it now. <laughs> because I think when you start to get desensitized, then you get burnout, you can get compassion fatigue. To stay sensitized to it and also to find a way to speak to it as close to in the moment as possible. Because we have to, we ha- I have to be willing to offer up my perspectives so that maybe some people can have some food for thought after we have a conversation. And also, since I've been listening, I've been learning a lot from them, uh, even if I've been learning just about their discomfort around the topics that we're talking about. And I think philosophically, what really pushes me forward every day in this work, and it's probably from my own positionality, so you can probably just draw a line from who I am as a person to the work that I do, I really do believe that there is no need for a zero-sum game between human beings. We are immensely creative creatures, and there are infinite ways for us to find enough. I say like there is enough and plenty for everyone. And I really do look at it as maybe even a type of new calculation that we might have to shape our future in a way, because I think a lot of our tribal and economic systems and our social structures have been really heavily influenced on, if I give up my piece so that you can have something, then we need to fight about it. (laughs) And whatever that is, you know, uh, I think that we can get education and insight Uh, from anyone, anywhere. I've learned so much from people who have never set foot on a college campus. And I've been illuminated by people who lived thousands of years ago in the stuff that they wrote. And I've been amazed to be able to apply things from different disciplines into the work I do, the creative arts, the performing arts, you know, mathematicians, economists, uh, historians. There's so much information out there. I just like to put it all together and think of how can we actually fix this. Uh, and then it's a skill too, I think, you know, so like my philosophy isn't just sort of 
let's just have visions of how the world can be. It's it's actually about these processes. It's the daily work of doing all the talking and the sharing and the adjusting to make sure everybody's comfortable and willing and engaged. And mm-hmm. it, it's a constant feedback machine of human progress, I think. I don't know if I got anywhere in what I just said, but... <laughs> no, I love that. Yes, absolutely. That's the way it exists in my head. I hope people are listening really closely as you say this, because I think that this kind of awareness of what we're experiencing in corporate spaces where this conversation is not happening so much, I think people are experiencing it, right? But then they're not like having conversations about it, you know? And so having a framework or multiple frameworks for thinking about how we experience spaces, how we experience a team of people and power dynamics and who is sharing and who's not sharing and whose ideas are given resources and whose aren't. Bringing all of this to it is really what we need to be doing to have a new mm-hmm. understanding of how we create and maintain and heal cultures um, mm-hmm. with organizations and, and then where those organizations are based. So I think this is, this is so, so great and very, very helpful, I think. Great, good. So let's talk about the outreach programs <laughs> that you that you work on. Um, I know that as an educational institution, a lot of the work you do is educational, but it's not just within the borders of the university. It's very much out in the community with students who are much younger than university age or grad school age. Can you talk about those programs? Yes, I'd love to. So I think in a in a Definitely a structured, but not necessarily in a sort of formal program way. The community outreach that I tend to focus on is connecting with middle school and high school populations. As many people who are much smarter than me can say, early education is key when it comes to STEM professions. And so being able to connect with children, really, in in, in even just exploratory terms, is I think it's, it's absolutely essential for the future of nursing, I'd say, and the future of healthcare as a whole. There's a lot of myth busting that has to happen <laughs> because we've got some pretty uh, strong images out there in the in the public, in the media, uh, in the uh, social sphere that are that are uh, fictional, you know, or just don't tell a lot of the story that I think could interest students. It's not just what's seen on television. Uh, which, by the way, can be shaped actually by nurses who function as consultants for some of these medical shows, which is it's a job, actually, in nursing. And sometimes that's what I like to tell young people. I'm like, did you know that you can work in TV if you're a nurse? Wide eyes. Tell me how, you know, and uh, I'll drop I'll drop that gem on them. But I think just being able to have them you know, come on campus and experience just being on campus. That's enough. I mean, you know, Ohio State is an institution like many others that it really looms large in the imagination of people who see it uh, in the public eye. And so to be able to say like they went to Ohio State for their field trip and they got to meet current students, they met someone who's a faculty member, you know, they've been encouraged to do well in math and science and also in their language classes because multilingual nurses and health professionals are a must, (laughs) you know, or to just put a spotlight on their own identities and say, you know, hey, if you or someone you know comes from these, you know, communities, because in Central Ohio, we're, we're blessed with tremendous diversity from long established populations and recent immigrant populations alike. You know, some of these young people don't realize that their positionality is so needed in this profession. 
So I, I like to share stuff like that with kids as, as young as possible and, and really just open them up to the options. Somewhat of a more structured effort is around high school. So that'll usually involve pairing up with folks who are hosting things like career and college fairs. And that is just a regular roster, a regular calendar of events, um, and just very much within the cycle of, of their academic year. Very, very grateful to have years-long collaborations at this point with Columbus City Schools. Um, I can think of Fort Hayes in particular that does focus on the health sciences as part of their education there. And, and so just being able to partner with schools who already have students that are very much interested in these pr- professions anyway, it feels like it's a high-impact kind of event there. But I will say the signature program at the College of Nursing is the Summer Institute for Future Nurses, which uh, for three days each June basically offers an immersive experience in the nursing professions for high schoolers at this point from around the country because they can actually join us via virtual means as well. We do have an in-person component. uh, And I think that's just been a byproduct in the sort of the world that's been shaped by going through a global pandemic, um, we went all virtual, and then we decided to stay with that because we were getting students from amazing places around the nation, like just a whole bunch of young people from a border town in Texas, for example, <laughs> attended our virtual offerings last year. And so it just feels like it's it's very much um, access. It's about access and attainment of this information, regardless of geographic boundaries. Certainly people have to have an internet connection to join us, uh, but there's a lot of progress that we're making in being able to get information out to whatever student is interested in it. Um, Huge barriers have been lifted there, but the in-person component, it's a packed schedule. We basically shape it (laughs) to mimic somewhat of a nurse's typical day. I mean, we're not doing the 12-hour shifts, but we are keeping them moving. We're keeping them going from one thing to the other. We are absolutely making sure that it's a rich academic experience for them and that they're also being able to do hands-on activities. So I have a lot of great colleagues who are uh, nursing faculty who come and instruct the students in mock lecture and uh, clinical skills settings. We're blessed to have a technology learning center, which essentially has a mock hospital environment that our own students, graduate and undergraduate students get taught in and and the high school students get to experience that. They also experience other spaces in the medical enterprise, which is the great thing about being you know, at a, a university that has uh, hospitals like less than three minute walk away. Uh, you know, we can put them in lab spaces and have them learn even more there. Um, we're excited to be able to partner uh, with the James who offers uh, exquisite world-class cancer care. So yeah, so essentially that's the that's and and we take in about 40 students each summer for the Summer Institute for Future Nurses. And I think the last one I'm not directly involved with it, but I I got I got to put a light on it because I think it has a an innovation aspect and and somewhat of a broad impact are the health equity scholars. They uh, go through the health equity scholars program, teams of students from various disciplines. It has to be interdisciplinary in terms of the student team. They will uh, apply for seed funds for health equity projects. They're mentored by faculty uh, and they actually need to carry out that project in the community. It tends to attract a really diverse group, obviously through discipline, but also through background. And that is something that's been running at the college for a few years. And I, I think is fairly unique, definitely at our institution. I haven't 
run the stats and done the research. Uh, but that's definitely something that's having, it's a small, it's a relatively small amount of money that's having a great impact in the community because that's, that's, that's the focus. Yeah. I mean, you think about health equity in any major city and I, I don't feel like people are tackling it the way they should, or if at all. And it is a huge issue. It affects everything else, you know, school attendance, you know, work performance, your overall health. And I just think it's something that people miss. But I wanted to comment on the educational programs. It was reminding me of my own experience. So in high school, I went to an international school and interned at a hospital because at first I was thinking, I want to go down the medical track. And that experience allowed me to see that, number one, it, it wasn't the right track for me. But the reason that when I did a rotation in OBGYN, gastrointestinal and all these areas. And then the last piece of that rotation was with the administration and operations team. And I got so excited about that. And they were like, you know, maybe you should go to business school. Like if you don't like the <laughs> other aspects. And I was like, this is perfect. Because you think about students that spend all this money on, you know, post-secondary education and higher education and then get to the end of it, start that profession and are like, you know what? I don't like this. I mean, I see that so many times in healthcare and in the legal field. And so I just think that that's so important because students can then, really get that hands-on experience and see, are these things that I really enjoy as opposed to something that just someone told me or just that I've seen on TV. So I think also it showed me the thing that was also very interesting was it was all women that were in that office and there were women of color. And it also just showed me, okay, well, I could do this because I'm seeing people that look like me doing this. And it kind of gave me a little bit more inspiration because in all the other areas in the hospital, the faculties and the departments were led by men. So it just, as a young person, you see this and it's difficult. Sometimes it's like you can't be what you can't see. And so when you see that there's somebody of a different gender and a different race in all these areas, it's hard for you as a young person to think, oh, I can do this as well. So I just think that that's great that you guys are doing this programming because oftentimes, particularly in marginalized communities, they don't have those examples. They don't have people that they can talk to and creating that pipeline and giving them opportunities to experience that is, it's like planting trees or <laughs> never sit under, you know, because it's gonna just have a ripple effect for those young Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it is that anyone who has the opportunity, the privilege, and honestly just wants to be strategic about the kind of labor force <laughs> that's available mm -hmm. would want to activate true interests and investments within young people because it's, it's something else to watch passionate, ambitious, creative just intelligent, funny, joyous children, you know, consider some some kind of path to put that kind of energy into. And young people can often be assigned certain things that they need to be doing and focusing on by, you know, elders around them. They can go that path until they flip it all on its head and throw everything away and find something else. They can, you know, they, they can come about their full potential in all kinds of ways. And I, with my social worker bias, <laughs> really love to help people coach people sometimes. And I also call it like selling people on their own dreams, 
because sometimes people don't even quite know what it is they want to do yet, but it's the role of some of us in society who are coaches, mentors, we can have that role and we can have so many labels on those functions of mentoring and coaching that it can, it can be, it can be so freeing of the individual for them to spend most of their time doing something that is for something that they really deeply authentically care about. And that authenticity can be found very young in people. And also to say like, you don't have to pick just one thing. That's, that's kind of what I like. And I came to it just by, you know, just happenstance, you know, coming to a relatively eclectic profession myself, because I, I, I just like too many things, <laughs> you know, I can't, it's called social work. It's also called DEI and B, but I get to do so many things. I get to explore business. I get to explore clinical counseling. I get to explore the expressive arts. I get to explore crisis resolution. And a lot of people are that way too. I think everybody's just their own universe. And so just being able to give them space to just be that and grow that and be challenged in it too. Not just like left, like, okay, you know, figure it out, kid, you know, like, no, like, Let's try all these different things. Let's walk you around in rotation after rotation after rotation. Let's have you sit in this, oh, I'm rolling my eyes again, some adult coming to talk to me. Yeah, because, you know, when the guest speaker finally starts talking about what her dream is, she's a doctor. You know, she seems like she's at the pinnacle of something. But she says, no, you, what I really want to do when I grow up is I want to open my own hospital back in my home country. Kids' eyes light up and they're like, whoa, what's that about? And she'll tell them because she's telling them more about what her passion is. And that's a real experience I had facilitating, you know, an event over in a a, a local uh, school on, on the north side here, you know, just a few months ago. Truly passionate, alive people will inspire other people to be also very passionate and to just consider, consider planting those seeds, like you said, Chloe, planting those seeds. We might never watch these mighty oaks grow, but they're there. Yes. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. I feel like you today for us have been that passionate, inspired person who's planting seeds and 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 giving us giving us energy to grow our tall, tall oaks. So. Yes, yes, yes. So inspired, so inspired by the work that you're doing. Really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And, you know, I, I really, I really value this conversation. It was really great. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the show, Rachel. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn at Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out our previous shows. Stay tuned for next time. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.